Welcome to the Faith Together podcast from the Center for Faith and Family at Olivet Nazarene University. If you believe that passing down Christian faith is essential for the next generation, you are in the right place. Enjoy conversations with guests who are faith practitioners, parents, caregivers, pastors, counselors, and many more. You'll enjoy practical tools and community for passing down Christian faith to your children and grandchildren. Welcome back to the Faith Together podcast. I'm Lindsay, and I'm here joined with Leon. Hi, Leon. Hello, and Mark is with us again. Yes, welcome back, Mark. Thank you. It's great to be here again. Great to have you with us. If you weren't able to join us last week for our first episode of Faith Together in 2024, we highly recommend that you go back and take a listen uh, because we have just begun a brand new series called Moving Forward by Looking Back. And here at Faith Together, we're taking time to look back at church history and how we might learn what the church did, things that they uh, came across, parallels that we see between a pre-Christian era and uh, today, a post-Christian era. And so we have uh, Dr. Frisius Mark here with us. Did I say that correctly? Did I say your last name? Frisius. Frisius. I'm so sorry. Yes, Frisius. Okay. I appreciate that. So Mark is here with us. He was with us on our last episode and is going to be sharing from his perspectives as a church historian and university professor of theology here at Olivet how... Uh, we can identify some parallels between a pre-Christian and a post-Christian culture to help us pass on a thriving faith to kids, students, the next generation. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad to be here and and thanks uh, for the opportunity to uh, get to kind of talk about things that I'm pretty passionate about, uh, particularly enjoy. Yeah. So I generally am all about the what, right? Mark knows that about me. So the what is, what is it that we need to do to do this? And, and I'm always pushing that, let's get this thing down the road. We've got, we've got things to do. And Mark tempers that a bit. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think we work so well together by asking the question, uh, before you can get to the what, you need to really know the why. And so part of what we're doing here is kind of discovering the why. Right. Yeah. And I might even take over your what for just a little bit oh. and say uh, that when we, when we think about passing on our faith, we also have to think about what are we going to teach them and not just kind of focus only on how do we teach them this and what are effective tools. And those are super necessary, but we also have to think about what, what is the content uh, of what it is that we teach them. I would agree with that. So, that's good. So that's mm-hmm. my part. Okay. <laughs> that's the end okay. of the podcast. All right. <laughs> Have a good day. <laughs> okay, so that's not the end of the podcast. No. We're going to keep going. We have so much more. We have so much more. We do. So uh, we've been looking at this parallel, Mark. Uh, Lindsay mentioned it, this pre, what we are kind of defining as a pre-Christian era prior to uh, the Christianizing of the world through Emperor Constantine. And there's some things that we can learn, we think, from those early Christians whose life may not be all that different, at least from a faith context, from our lives today. Right. So they face some of the same challenges that we face today. Um, that in the last podcast, we talked about how it seems like culture is moving a bit away from kind of traditional Christian thought and, and morals and teachings to becoming either apathetic or antagonistic. And certainly the early church lived within that same sort of a 
a broad cultural challenge that we face. Yeah, so our hope is we can learn some things from them so we can do our job better. That's right, yeah. So as you look at the process of early Christianity, uh, what sort of things stood out to you about the process of teaching Christianity to others? Or the the word would be, this is a big word. You've <laughs> been teaching us big <laughs> words, Mark. So help me with this. Would it be cate- like catechism, but cate- catechetical? Catechetical. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Catechetical process. So the process of learning our faith and what we believe. Right. Yeah. yeah. So I, I tend to think of it as like the onboarding process. So how onboarding. do we bring somebody like... new into our into our organization, into our churches? And I think that can can have a lot of parallels for both new converts who are maybe adults, but also to perhaps think about our kids not as being born Christian, uh, but as being shaped and formed into the faith rather than it kind of naturally starting out as a Christian. Okay. So maybe we need to help people understand catechism, that that word may create some angst for some people. So how, why are we even talking about catechism? What, what, what does that mean, Mark? Yeah. So I just, it's, it's just kind of the process that, that they would go through. So what, what do we teach and how do we kind of come alongside you to help you make the faith your own, kind of walking you through uh, what are the beliefs of Christianity, but also uh, what are the practices of Christianity? And so the early church had a had a couple of different kind of ways in which they went about it. So uh, we can go back and look at catechetical manuals. So uh, one guy wrote like a 80-page manual for catechesis. Uh, wow. So don't worry, we're not going to read that one. This is yeah. for new believers? <laughs> this is for new believers. Oh, my goodness. But it was, it was mostly for the people who walked through that process with them so that they would have a, have a kind of a set of questions and benchmarks for after you teach this and then you teach that, um, those sorts of things. Uh, so it's really kind of this process of forming faith in the new believer in order to prepare them for a full inclusion in the Christian community. Um, and one of the things that's always kind of striking, uh, again, probably if, if you grew up within an American context, where just kind of many were just kind of born, you go to church, um, where some people will be like, yeah, I was there when I was five days old, uh, where church is kind of, it was always the thing. For them, it was, it was a pretty lengthy process to be considered a part of the church. So it was about a three-year process for many people. And so it could take, they could certainly fast forward that. They could also slow it down. But in general, it's this kind of this, this three-year process that, that they saw as leading to the point of baptism, which was the point then where the person was considered a Christian. That sounds pretty intense. 80 pages well, worth. Yeah, <laughs> right. So what would be some of, the, some of the things that might be included in a three-year journey? Yeah, I'm just, rather than pose a bunch of questions, I'm just going to let you talk about that. Right. So probably important to note, like, the, like at the end of the three years, it's not like the journey is over. Sure. Um, that's just... <laughs> That's just to become a member of the church. Um, and then after that, you're living out the Christian life the rest of the time. And the idea wasn't that you, like, you stop growing at that point or that the process is over, but that you would hit a, hit a, a mile marker, kind of a, a significant moment, but not the last moment. Yeah. Um, so um, and oftentimes they would, they would have um, a sponsor. Uh, so in order to be considered even for the catechetical program, if you will, there had to be somebody who vouched for you and said, yeah, they're... They're interested. I think they're capable of doing this. And then that person would walk through it all with you. And the idea was that that we embed ourselves in your life. Mm-hmm. And as we walk through it, we can be asking you questions. We can be dialoguing back and forth. 
uh, and looking for things that are perhaps not consistent uh, with how it is that Christianity is being lived out. So what you're saying is there was not only a commitment on the individual that was going through the catechetical process. There, I got (laughs) it. it. Catechetical (laughs) that was going through the catechetical process, but there was also a commitment from the faith community they were a part of. Right, yeah. To walk alongside them. Yeah, definitely a mutual commitment that that it's not so much somebody committing to the church, but it's also the church committing to them. And I always like when we when we have like a child dedication or something that there's there's this the the spot where the church commits to say we also alongside the parents um, will do our part in helping to raise this child in the faith. Yeah, that's really beautiful and a really I think important parallel between history looking back and today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm interested in some more Mark of the that three year. Thing. So what are you learning from kind of studying that process? What, what were the ingredients of the, it seems like a conversion process. Yeah. Yeah. They didn't tend to think of conversion as like uh, just a moment. There were certain key moments that have to happen, but they didn't think about it as just like one moment in time where oftentimes we might would say like with a kid, like they came into their parents' bedroom and they prayed with mom and dad, uh, they mm-hmm. went to the altar, they prayed with their parents. But the early church would see like the entire process that got them to that point, that that is all part of the conversion story you know, of someone. And so this three years is part of that kind of ongoing process you know, of understanding the faith and becoming a person of faith. And it's, giving space to ask questions. Right, yeah, and questions. it sounds to me like th- this was a huge commitment on someone's part. It wasn't just like going to the altar and praying a prayer and now... I'm in, as, right. some, as we maybe tend to think. Now, I also wonder, and I don't want to take us on a rabbit trail, so if this <laughs> does, maybe we need to come back to it another time. Leon and his wondering. Yes. <laughs> so I wonder, it seems that most of what I've heard you talk about, both here on our podcast and as we've kind of shared in the office, that most of these converts were new adult converts, and this is the process as adults that they went through, Right. Right. We're early enough maybe in in the life of the church that the thought of passing it down to children maybe wasn't necessarily a part of their thinking yet. Right. So it's, it's a part of their thinking. Okay. It is, and, so it is a part of their thinking. And they thinking. tended to, because they were so separated from culture, it oftentimes became a little bit more organic for those kids to be a part of the church. And so that it, it wasn't just this is a cultural thing that we do. This is just a part of being a good Roman. Um, it was our family is defining itself as we're not worshiping the Roman gods and those sorts of things. But they would still see it as certainly being taught. Uh, okay. So at the beginning of the third century, so the early 200s, a guy named Tertullian kind of talks about this. And what he says is Christians are not born, they're made. Uh, hmm. And what he means is that uh, there's an intentional process of formation which eventuates with somebody becoming a Christian. And I think they would apply that to both to, to children, that they had to walk through that process as well. And typically, they would wait until the child was a little bit older. Uh, so you know, maybe preteen for us today. Okay. So mom and dad would then pull out their Bibles and begin telling them Bible stories around the coffee table in their living room. Something like that? Not so much. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so how, how, sorry. So how did that, how did that process then 
uh, kind of go? Yeah, so first off, they, they, they didn't really have a Bible to pull out. Uh, so most of these people that we're going to talk about, they couldn't read. Um, oh. And um, even if they could read, they might not even have a copy of the Bible to look at. Uh, so it hasn't spread out all the way yet. Uh, so our familiarity with the text is something that they would not really have a have a way of thinking about or understanding. And that was one of the things that was really kind of interesting when I looked at the the different approaches to catechesis. There was very little reference to the Bible at all, wow. um, which, especially for those of us who live in a contemporary environment, particularly for Protestants, that we have grown up with the Bible. Right. Um, right it's like right in the middle. Our sermons Several are based versions. after it. Yeah, like... <laughs> Like, just think about your bookshelf growing up, right? They're, they're everywhere, right? And now it's on our phone, and um, we have this, this ready access to it, and, and the Bible is, is certainly seen as, I mean, really important for us, right? For, for us, we, we talk about Bible study all the time, right? Like, you right. should be involved in a Bible study. You should maybe read through the whole Bible in a year. Um, it's like it's a badge of honor. You know, daily Bible reading, like that's a spiritual discipline for us. And so there's this really kind of clear focus, or perhaps even a pressure, uh, to deeply engage with and study the Bible. And some of that's um, certainly driven by our theology as Protestants, that um, we have a nice Latin phrase, sola scriptura. Um, mm-hmm. Scripture is our final and highest authority, is the source of our faith. It's the main go-to when we're thinking about evangelism. We'll hand them a Bible. Maybe read the Gospel of Mark, the best-named one. Um, all of those <laughs> sorts of things. It's the proof of our beliefs. And what oftentimes happens is we create kind of this environment, right, where there's, there's, this, there's a lot of weight that the entire Scripture is being placed on um, new converts and on our kids. Uh, and then again, the, the job is for us to then, we got to read the whole thing. We have to understand the whole thing. And that's a Again, probably a very difficult proposition, and and I think kind of those in the early church maybe even realized it. Let me make a quick note. This is not to say that they're demeaning the Bible, um, that they think that the Bible isn't important or essential, but it's talking more about expectations um, and the expectations that we're placing uh, on new believers, on young believers, and in our current context to to think about, like, this is a very broad-ranging book and an ancient text, and we're giving it to people without a way to think about how do I, how do I make heads or tails of this? Mm. Right. And am I correct in saying during this period of time, as you're saying, they weren't able to read many of them. The Bible wasn't readily available. And so when the Bible was read, it was read within a community of people. Right. So Sometimes I joke that, that your qualification, if you're going to be a bishop in the early church or a pastor, is you had to be able to read. Like, if you could yeah. read in the community, you, you were the pastor because yeah. you could read the text. So they did have a really important place for the text, just the way in which they interacted with it would have been very, very different from us. And the, the breadth of it would also be quite different. Um, so we put a lot of value on um, learning all of the Bible stories and Old Testament and New Testament, and this is just a part of what it is to be a Christian. But for them, they would put a lot less emphasis on it, and not just because it it was not as accessible to them, but I think they also realized that there are some things in there that are really hard to understand, and that if you don't have kind of a, a toolbox in order to understand those things, then oftentimes the Bible can set people off 
gotten away from the faith rather than drawing them into the faith because they'll, so I think of um, when my son was three, I won't say which one, yeah, but <laughs> when, uh, when my son was three, we were doing a read through the Bible thing. And so we were sitting there at dinner. And so you think about it, where do we start? We start in Genesis. And what happens in Genesis 3? We have a murder. And so you have, here I have this three-year-old and you're trying to explain to them, murdering your brother, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, like, woo, I, like, like it, it immediately starts with, with some difficult passages for what do we do with those? We then go on to Noah and the ark, and we, we always think of like the animals and everything, and kids will pick up on what happened to the other people. Where'd they go? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. if God is mad at me, you know, is that what happens to me? And so, uh, and then we moved on. And this is the point where we stopped. We got to Leviticus. This <laughs> is where a lot of people stopped. Uh-huh. But we were, uh, we were doing the, uh, the sacrificial laws, and they were talking about how do we, like, kill the birds. Uh, and my son loved birds. And I was like, I'm reading to you out of this book that I'm telling you is, like, the super important book, and we need to really take it seriously. And I'm reading to you about how to kill a bird. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and he was just, like, like, weirded out by it. And I thought— sure. Well, maybe we ought to, <laughs> ought to take a different approach. Yeah. And so a couple things. First of all, I love to be able to correct my boss. So Mark is my boss in case uh, you all didn't <laughs> pick up on that. And uh, so for our those who are Bible checking us, uh, it's Genesis 4 that the first murder was, not oh, Genesis thank 3. You. Yeah. So, um, it's so, Genesis 3's fault, though. <laughs> yeah, that would be true. But it sounds, Mark, like we're pretty close, I don't know, we're pretty close to saying that teaching the Bible maybe is not a good thing. Do I? Am I wanting to go that far? I recognize as a children's pastor the struggle of teaching the truth of Scripture to children. In fact, Lindsay and I were talking about this this morning. Mm-hmm. This is difficult uh, because we want to be faithful to the biblical story but the truth is the Bible is not a children's book. Even though we have Bible, you know, we have Bible story books and things like that for children. We want if we're teaching our children the Bible, we want to teach them the truth there, not make it into a moral lesson right. or a, like a fairy tale or anything like that. We want it to be truthful and that becomes difficult. Right. And so part of what I think they did was they they thought about how do we introduce the Bible you know, in a way that you know, we can slowly walk them through. You know, instead of introducing the entirety of it, we use smaller pieces of it to reinforce the things that we're talking about and then spend part of what they would do during those three years is they would talk about you know, what are key passages that help to illustrate kind of our faith. So they would, they would focus in on things like the Sermon on the Mount or the, um, especially the Beatitudes yeah. uh, that are in there. Uh, but also um, what we call the antitheses. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I say to you, uh, don't be angry. So they would, they would focus on memorizing kind of some of those key passages with the idea being, right, that they, they wanted to more slowly introduce some of the other texts that might cause some questions that they weren't ready to ask or answer yet. Um, the way that I sometimes think about it when I, when I think about their approach is that when my kids were little, uh, the movies that they watched – were things like Thomas the Tank Engine. We had a whole Thomas the Tank Engine phase. They weren't ready for other movies that that I really wanted to watch with them. Like yeah. I, I'd had plenty of Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> you were ready to move on. I, I was ready to move on, but they weren't um, because they 
their minds weren't ready for some of these more complicated stories. Uh, and so we had to kind of move them into that place so they could be ready to watch Marvel or something else with me. Just they weren't ready for what, how do they deal mm-hmm. and handle kind of the messages of those movies. But they made it. Um, and that was, I think, how they tended to think about it. Like, there are some stories that we want you to have a little bit more of a foundation and that we want you to have a little bit more of an understanding of how the texts work before we just jump into them. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think it's a, a matter of them saying we don't, we don't need the Bible, the Bible's unimportant, or we're trying to hide things, but that we want you to be ready when, when we do start to talk about it. Uh, and so after the kind of that three-year process, we would see more engagement uh, with the Bible um, mm-hmm. in kind of that community setting. Uh, but there was a sense that there are some stories we have to be prepared for. Yeah. And maybe a, maybe a bit of a disclaimer here. So as you're listening, we're not proposing that these people in the first uh, three centuries, two centuries, three centuries, um, had it all figured out. And if we just do what they did, then our kids will have faith. What we're trying to do is learn from things that they did that worked, that fit in our context, and recognizing that we have to listen to them in their context. Right. Right. So context is really, really important. So we can't just take information and just transfer it automatically without considering the context. So I think that's part of what we're doing as we work through this is asking the question, what did they do? And then what can we learn from those things? Not that we necessarily replicate them exactly the way they did them, but what can we learn from them that can be uh, effective in the context in which we find ourselves today? Yeah, I think that's really good. I think it's fair. And I think that there's always more to discover about scripture, no matter how many times you read it and how many times you reflect on it and think about it. And so one of those pieces that I I'm connecting from the pre-Christian cultures to where we are today is that reflecting on the same scriptures again and again is very useful and helpful because there's always something more that the Lord can show you, but it doesn't take away from, you know, that he's written this grand story that we're all a part of that even for me as an adult, you know, 10, 12 years ago, I started to really connect all those dots. Oh, this is one big story. You know, it's not just this certain story and then this one, but they actually all work together to tell you who God is. But if you aren't sitting in and being formed by who Jesus is from the beginning, it it's not a solid foundation to keep adding those other pieces. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so. and I think there's a, a Christian education concept here that might be helpful as well, and that is that as we develop intellectually, uh, we are constantly learning, unlearning, and then relearning. Mm-hmm. And so I think this is true for Scripture. We we learn it at the level which we're able to understand it at that point. We then go through a process of unlearning some of that and then relearning it at a much deeper level. Yeah. Um, I, I love, you know, when I when I read or or hear from scholars who say, you know, I've been studying this book of the Bible my entire life. I still have not yeah. completely digested all of it. And I think, oh, my goodness, what hope is there for the rest of us uh, <laughs> with the whole Bible? If uh, this scholar is, you know, spent his whole life studying the book of Romans and um, and still feels like there's things in there that are still discoverable. Yeah. Okay. Well, 
Where do we go from here, Mark? <laughs> so, yeah, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm clear that, that yeah, we're not, we're not saying, hey, get rid of the Bible or that they got rid of the Bible, but that the way that they approached it was to say, we want to be a little bit more measured in terms of how we introduce it to people and how we help them to be able to engage with it. So I think one of their concerns was that if you approach the Bible without any kind of knowledge about it, that some of the places in there that are hard to understand, instead of, again, reinforcing our faith, ends up creating dissonance, um, Mm -hmm. a disconnection from our faith. Yeah, and we've yeah. seen that in our own culture as well, right? Where people sure. will look at a particular scripture and say, how can you believe in a God that would say such a thing or do such a thing? And it's a misunderstanding of what the text is saying right. oftentimes. Yeah, and the Bible itself tells us that there are pieces that are hard. So I always think of uh, like Second Peter 3.16, where the, the text tells us that Paul writes the same way in all his letters, speaking of these matters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. Um, and ignorant and unstable people distort them. And and. Part of what I see in that is that Peter is a contemporary of Paul. He knows him. And he's like, I don't got half of what Paul's talking about. All right? And and that there are then consequences that this can be twisted. And so the early church wanted to kind of protect against some of that by by giving them verses that could be memorized, um, but not, again, not hiding, but saying, when you're ready to be able to to really think about this well, then we'll bring these other pieces in. That's really good. And I... So what I'm hearing you share is that in the pre-Christian world, as new believers were coming to be a part of the faith community, they would go through a three-year process. Right, yeah. Catechetical process. (laughs) I got it again, yes. Catechetical process that they would learn and be taught scripture in a way that was fitting to their context and it was also not overwhelming because of their their context being they couldn't read they didn't have the bible available but also because it was it would be overwhelming and not helpful right so it, it could have the opposite effect of what it what it ought to have mm-hmm. um, because the the recipient wasn't in a place where they could properly receive it yeah and so they saw as part of this onboarding process, how do we how do we properly train you to be able to engage with this text? Wow. So so we need to be helping our parents understand how to dig into the scripture faithfully so that they can then begin teaching their children how to do that as well. That sounds like a curriculum that probably should be developed at some point along the way. <laughs> I uh, think so. For for those of you who may be new to us, that's one of our projects is to create some curriculum that would help parents in this process. So and, and if part of that was they saw that there could be really devastating consequences if that didn't happen. Uh, that if if somebody wasn't prepared, didn't have some training on how do we do this, that they could go off in any kind of direction that is not supported by the yeah. text. And we've definitely seen that occur. Yeah, absolutely. We see it all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, what are some of the other things then, Mark, that that you've discovered as you've listened to these ancient people struggle and work through, navigate their faith? Right. So, at the same point where they they didn't put a lot of emphasis on the Bible, except for memorizing a few kind of passages um, and highlighting them, where they did put their most of their energy was in for memorization was in terms of what we have as the creeds. Uh, So these statements of doctrine um, they saw as particularly important. And 
Here we would see, again, a lot of involvement from the church that the bishop or the leader of the community would help kind of walk them through what does the church actually teach. So when it comes to that, the, they, they focused a lot on kind of a doctrinal growth and understanding in the people um, and, and perhaps preference that to most other things. And so they tended to view this as, I call it um, repetitious progression. Um, we keep repeating it again and again and again, instead of getting frustrated, like, oh, why didn't you get it the first time? There was the expectation that is, this is going to take, I mean, we got three years, right? this is going to take a yeah. while. And so we want to make sure that you're, you're really getting and understanding why do, why do we believe that there's just one God? Why do we believe that Jesus is the son of God? Um, why do we believe that Jesus is also human? Um, and walking through those types of things, what is the presence of the Holy Spirit? So the memorization of the creeds was designed for them to then come back and ask questions. When you say the communion of saints, what do you mean? When we talk about everlasting life, what does that look like? And so it's designed for them to, to memorize these basic aspects and then invites them to then go to a deeper exploration of uh, the truths that Christianity is teaching. So it sounds like they went beyond just, this is what we believe, now you need to believe it, to actually helping them understand why we believe it. Right. There's, there's at least the invitation to, to, to do that. Um, some were content, um, in all honesty, to just say, well, okay, just give me, give me the list. Uh, and sometimes, you know, which of us doesn't sometimes just, just tell me what to do. Um, but for the most part, they wanted to say, okay, here's, here's why we're doing these things. Here's why we believe this. So it, it creates that sort of opening environment um, for them to, to actually start the process of making this faith their own. And you mentioned earlier that this person going through the catechesis process had a sponsor. Right. I'm assuming that sponsor stayed with them through the journey right. of those three years, right? Right. So they would be with them all three years. Uh, the idea was that part of the responsibility is to make sure that you get the teaching that you need. So it wasn't always the sponsor who did all of the teaching. Um, there were others that, that would be able to do some of those things. You know, but the expectation would be that the sponsor had a basic understanding of the faith because they'd gone through the process themselves. Mm -hmm. um, and again, the, the way that I think about it is embedding yourself in mm -hmm. their life. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're, you're not just, oh, hey, I see you at church, but I'm walking with you to church. We're having meals together. Mm -hmm. We're it, it's almost like a little like a mini small group a little bit. Okay. Um, so in our language today we might call this person a mentor. I think so. Or a parent. I think that yeah, there's a lot of parallels. We'll use Lindsay's word. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of parallels between how they, they, they thought of a sponsor and how we think of a parent leading their mm. child to faith. Okay. So I think we've we've hit a connecting point here. Absolutely. Uh, that that the role that this mentor played in the life, the development of this adult who is new to the faith, who is on this three-year journey plus the rest of their life, that person plays a significant critical role in the in the development process in much the same way that parents do in the life of their kids today. Right. Yeah. And it and it really was kind of this call for patience um, <laughs> that that to not have the expectation that the first time that I tell them something, they're going to get it. Um, that we, we continue to kind of go back to this and that um, we, we almost have to be open to exploring our own faith just a little bit more too and 
um, you know, I think for the mentors it was important. They had to be honest with themselves about the places where they're like, you know what, I, I don't think I get this either. You know, let's go ask somebody else. And I think there was that great openness to say, yeah, we need to, we need to bring other people into the conversation when we, when we don't quite get what we're talking about. Right, and allowing for time to take the journey that it needs to for each individual. I'm sure each three-year process for different people what looked completely different than another. Right. Yeah. Some they 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 raced through it, and, and yeah, uh, you would have ones where um, they moved pretty quickly in, in less than a year through, and then others are like, well, you're on like the eight-year program, um, <laughs> and and the important part I think was that they're they're on the journey. Right. Rather than that, they that the journey has come to an end, but that I think for them there was never an end to the journey until you died. Sure. Um, and so everybody's going to be at kind of a different different stage, and and I think it's pretty important to, to realize that for them this this doesn't mean like somebody is slow, that somebody just is dumb uh, or something yeah. like that, but that but that these are people that are in different stages of the journey who have different life experiences who are asking very different questions and that instead of dismissing them that we need to patiently walk with them Mm -hmm. well i think there's a lot to be learned there for those of us who are parents about the approach yeah easier said than done too yeah sure (laughs) absolutely well i i think this is a good stopping point for today but we want to give you a little bit of an insight of where this is going. So, Mark, can you kind of give us uh, a little teaser on what we might be talking about next week as far as kind of wrapping up this portion of our journey? Yeah, so for their catechesis project, it wasn't always or only uh, just, hey, what do we believe? Certainly an important part, but how does that kind of then impact the principles that we live by? Uh, so uh, how it how it affects their their moral understanding of things, uh, their the jobs that they could have, the way in which they engaged with the world that's around them, um, the friendships that they had, all those sorts of things um, started to come out as kind of that sponsor embeds themselves in the life of the new believer. Okay, so it sounds like starting to live out the faith that they are beginning to understand. Right. So I I might go a little more practical next time, Leon. Okay. Oh, oh, that'd be great. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. I hope that this process we're going through is helpful to you so that when we get to the next series and we begin talking about practical things that you can do in your home to begin the process of passing faith to your children, you'll understand a little bit the background of where those ideas came from, as well as an understanding that these things are rooted in the history of the church. And so until then, may the Lord bless you, keep you, and give you peace. You've been listening to the Faith Together podcast from the Center for Faith and Family at Olivet Nazarene University. Sign up for additional resources at centerff.com. When building faith, we are better together.